0: Hello and welcome to Broadcast, a new series made by WXVU Villanova. I'm Ryan Derry, the business director, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Marcus Kreuzer, the head of the political science department here at Villanova. Dr. Kreuzer, how are you? Fine, thank you. I'm the former chair of the political science Former, assignment. oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I'm back as a regular faculty.
0: Nice, are you enjoying that?
1: Uh, very much, yes.
0: Very nice. Um, so, thank you for joining us today. I'm sure you have a busy schedule, you know.
1: Uh, Well, thanks for having me. I'm on sabbatical, so actually here again, uh, (laughs) time is more readily available than normal.
0: Very nice. So let's get right into the questions. So starting with uh, your PhD thesis, where did you complete your PhD and what was it about?
1: So um, I did my undergraduate in Canada, then did some graduate work in in England at the LSE, and did my PhD at Columbia here in New York. And uh, the dissertation kind of came about um, being in a pro seminar. So after you complete your comps, you uh, enroll in a seminar where you're sort of trying to work out your dissertation prospectus. Uh, and I took that seminar in the spring of 1989. This was the mm-hmm. year when, you know, communism collapsed, the... Uh, Iron Curtain came down. And so everybody kind of, you know, was glued to the headlines, what was going on, and fascinated with um, the collapse of communism and, more importantly, the transition to democracy. Um, And so we all sort of were scratching our head, you know, how can we get an interesting angle on all of this? Um, And pretty quickly realized that studying the transition to democracy in the present uh, was a little bit tricky because you really didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. So um, it, the best you could do is sort of do highbrow journalism uh, rather than sort of social science where you were sort of more theory-guided and, and, mm-hmm. and test hypotheses. And so what um, this got me thinking is, well, why don't I look at some historical instances during the interwar period where democracy also kind of um, emerged and faltered and I was particularly interested in interwar France and Germany. Uh, I, I have some grandparents who grew up, uh, who lived in Austria during the interwar period and got all involved with the rise of National Socialism and the collapse of Austrian democracy. So there was a certain sort of personal angle uh, to it. So I sort of decided to, um, to focus on the interwar period, comparing um, Germany and, uh,
0: and France. Mm. And what type of data were you drawing upon when you did this research?
1: So this was very historical, right? So I always enjoyed history. I love reading uh, history and all the sort of the, 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 the details. And so the, the question I was trying to answer is, much of the existing sort of historiography, that is the existing historical accounts, attributed the collapse of uh, the Weimar Republic, that's the interwar democracy in Germany, to sort of political culture, that Germans somehow were authoritarian and, and Germany never really had a liberal uh, revolution, and that created a, a political culture that was very authoritarian, uh, not very uh, individualistic. Uh, and that somehow, you know, made the Germans kind of fall for Hitler and, 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 and his sort of uh, totalitarian uh, sort of system. Um, and um, a key element in this uh, sort of explanations were the political parties, that political parties in Germany were not very responsive to public opinion, that they were very much inward-looking, autocratic. So the example that is always cited was the, the Social Democrats. The Social Democrats, their idea of campaigning and winning votes was to go out and re-educate the voters to come to view uh, the mm. socialist orthodoxies as the thing that they ought to support. So uh, a rally of the Socialist Party was usually an hour-long lecture on mm. Marxist uh,
0: theory. Okay.
1: Um, and so, <laughs> you know, you can see that if, if that's how a, a political party tries to win voters, um, has a limited appeal, particularly during a period of tremendous economic and, uh, and social turmoil. And so the, the Nazis were far more effective in trying to sort of understand um, how to appeal to voters and, and, and introduce from the US some modern campaigning strategies. Mm. And so that sort of was uh, what I was trying to sort of um, explain because uh, in France, German parties were far more innovative, far more willing to uh, adopt modern campaigning strategies, to listen to voters. Mm. Um and so this sort of difference between those two countries uh, I tried to explain and the explanation without going into too many details was an institutional ones that Germany adopted a new electoral system that somehow created much more hierarchical parties that gave far more political authority to the party leaders and stifled the involvement uh, of the grassroots and that that sort of contributed to this sort of authoritarian party so what I was trying to show, therefore, is that this authoritarianism in Germany was not so much a product of culture uh, that was rooted in the deep history, that the failure of the liberal uh, revolution in the 19th century, but had a more proximate explanation uh, related to the adoption of a new set of institutions.
0: Mm. It's very interesting how your research was very much influenced by the times that you lived in and the, the climate that you, uh, you know, were, were doing your research in. Do you find that for a lot of political scientists that the sort of uh, news of the day affects what they're interested in?
1: That is a really interesting uh, 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 question. There are some debates uh, within political science, or I would say that discipline sort of falls into two camps. You really have the people who are trying to... Um, engage with the world uh, that they live in and um, try to find some answers and and understand it and see the social sciences as um, contributing to public debates, right? Informing them, making them more substantive, and thereby improve the outcome of, of public decision-making. Um, and then you have another sort of a strand in political science that is a little bit more inward-looking, right, that uh, sees social science as a, as a discipline, wanting to be more rigorous, more scientific. And so they focus more on methodological and technical innovations. Um, and uh, very often, by focusing on sort of more technical aspects... Um, it becomes more difficult to engage with the world that Mm -hmm. exists out there because that world is complex, Mm -hmm. messy, right? It doesn't really fit into uh, a neat little model. Um, And so I I think you have to sort of discipline these these two different camps. Um, Unfortunately, they don't always talk to each other Mm -hmm. as much as they ought to because the people who uh, are sort of more socially engaged... Know, could benefit from a little bit more methodological self-reflection grounding their arguments a little bit more theoretically and the people who sort of emphasize mythological rigor and science and quote uh, could benefit from those scholars who are more socially engaged of how to actually test a hypothesis that is mm. testworthy right right, right. and um, and you, you see some of these debates in in some of the recent criticisms of economists right mm mm-hmm who you know, failed to foresee the 2008 financial crisis right, right. And, and then kind of just continued as if the crisis didn't really mm. affect because they were so locked into their models and mm. methods. Um, but um, on the flip side, if you see, for example, right now, the whole uh, COVID um, crisis that we went through, right? I mean, that's clearly such a big topic that Mm -hmm. you can't ignore it. And everybody is trying to sort of figure out what are the big questions Mm -hmm. regarding to COVID? You know, what are the long-term effects for the labor market, for health, for uh, populism, and and so forth? And so, you know, I think there's sort of this seesaw in, in, in the disciplines where during times when we're politically more stable the discipline becomes becomes a little bit more inward-looking, more more technically-minded. And then you have these big uh, crises such as the end of communism, COVID, Mm. or um, populism that sort of serves as a corrective and rejiggers the discipline into sort of bigger-scale questions.
0: Interesting. And I have some more questions towards the end about methodology and models Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but I want to ask a question now about your PhD advisor. Could you give a brief bio about them, and could you say if they influenced your work?
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So Columbia was a peculiar uh, program, right? Typically, your PhD program admits eight or ten students that are funded for four or five years, and then you have a very close sort of mentor relationships uh, with your with your advisor. Columbia tended to admit each year 40 to 50 students, oh, right? wow. Of which only a small number were uh, funded, and so it was sort of a free-for-all or a sink, mm. sink or swim. And uh, working closely with your advisor was not something... Oh, interesting. <laughs> Uh, that happened uh, very often. I still remember outside, you know, the office hours, when a professor had an office hour. You know, you, you had to be there half an hour early, and then there was a line down the hallway, mm. and you got ten minutes of your of, of uh, face time with the professor. Compare that to the current sort of PhD training, where very often the students work very closely with the professor, co-author, and are mm. sort of apprentices. So. I didn't really have advisors that um, I worked particularly closely with. There was one professor who was close to retirement and didn't take on any students anymore that probably had a, a direct impact on me. It mm-hmm. was an Italian professor by the name of Giovanni Sartori who um, uh, was a sort of old You know, spoke six languages, Latin and Greek, did political theory, social science methodology, and and, and history. And he had written some very, very influential books on political parties and party systems. Um, And so I had read some of his work before I came to Colombia. He, in the early days of my sort of dissertation, uh, helped me along. But um, I was largely left uh, Mm. to my own devices. You know, which is certainly is not ideal, but you learn how to fend for yourself mm-hmm. and and become very self-disciplined. And so over the long run, uh, probably had some upsides. And the other thing, just to add, I mean, the fact that there were 50 students meant that, you know, you had an incredibly diverse student population. Uh, all of them were incredibly smart. And mm-hmm. so you just learn from each other. Right. We had mm-hmm. little study groups. We had little workshop groups. And I'm still in touch with many of them, and mm. many of them you know, have had very distinguished careers. And so it was just a different uh, way of, of, of learning.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you for your answer. Very interesting. So moving on to uh, Villanova-related stuff, could you talk a little bit about the path you took through your career that brought you to Villanova?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there is uh, always a little bit of serendipity in all of this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't plan to come to Villanova. I, you know, I, I grew up in, in 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 Europe and then did my undergraduate in Canada. So I was really not familiar with the American university mm-hmm. systems. I kn- knew some of the big national universities. Uh, Villanova was, yeah, basketball right. That was about mm-hmm. the extent, and that it was outside uh, uh, Philadelphia. Um, how I ended up here is. Um, I had finished my dissertation and then did my journeyman years, right? I was teaching as a visiting professor at Dartmouth, McGill, mm-hmm. and, 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 and Barnard. And each year went on the job market and had a few interviews um, and got invited. But it uh, was always the runner-up or, you know, in the first couple of go-arounds, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I made a fool out of myself. And so I got a little bit better over time. And then by year three... Uh, there was this uh, position here at Villanova that I applied for because it was close to Philadelphia. At the time, I was uh, married. Uh, my wife had a, had a, had a good job in, in, in New York, so we sort of thought we could make that uh, work. And I ended up um, getting an interview. And um, afterwards, I found out that the chair of the search committee, a professor by the name of Anne Lesh, she was a Middle Eastern specialist. She has uh, retired now um um her father was a professor of russian um russian studies at Columbia, mm-hmm. and after he had passed away prematurely the university um started a fellowship in his name the philip mosley fellowship and i was the awardee of the philip oh, mosley fellowship okay so you can imagine that probably stuck out
0: mm-hmm. yeah, to the yeah. chair
1: and um so they invited me uh, down for for an interview. And uh, two hours into the interview, I get a phone call that my wife had gone prematurely into labor. And so I had to rush back up to New York. Mm-hmm. We had to cancel the interview. And I came back two weeks later and probably gave the most relaxed interview that I ever had mm-hmm. because now, you know, I was a father. I had a small little <laughs> boy. These things didn't seem that important anymore, and so I was very laid back, and here I am. You know, it worked out, and 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 it's been a terrific place for me to to be, because uh, it gives you a lot of intellectual freedom. Right, Villanova mm-hmm. has sort of is that sweet spot between not being an R one research institution where it's publish or perish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also not being a liberal arts college, right, where you teach six different Mm, courses that make it more difficult to focus on your research. Um, And so you really get to do your your own sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And and it's been a very, very conducive uh, intellectual environment uh, Mm. for me that uh, I greatly appreciate it.
0: That's quite an exciting story about how you got here. That's really interesting. Yeah,
1: it's... Uh, serendipity always plays a big role you can't really plan your life too much Yeah,
0: so here at Villanova um, what type of research have you uh, been doing and has your past uh, focuses on uh, democratization and uh, like political parties and institutions affected your current research or current or recent research
1: yeah there is always some sort of connection right so when I started at um, Villanova here, the first priority was to finish up my dissertation turned into Mm -hmm. book. It came out as a book uh, two years later. And so I was talking, as I mentioned earlier, I was focusing on the relationship between political parties and the transitions to democracy during the interwar period. And so I figured, you know, the interwar period is about the messiest, most complicated Mm -hmm. period that you can think of. And so I had teamed up with a colleague from my grad school at Columbia who was focusing on Eastern Europe. He was studying the Baltics, that is, you know, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Mm-hmm. And so we had some, some, some sort of con- uh, conversations. He was interested in the development of political parties. But as I mentioned before, there wasn't really much of, of a theoretical framework to go with mm-hmm. because everything was so new and recent. I had studied during the interwar period and had a little bit more of a conceptual framework And so we sort of teamed up uh, and uh, published a few articles. It turns out that the post-communist world was even more complex Mm. and complicated in the interwar period. So we we had a couple of articles that we uh, published, and then the book that was trying to explain it all never really materialized because other things um, got in in the way. And... um, and I then also started to pivot my interests towards more methodological uh, concerns and interests, and more recently uh, on on populism. Mm. So that's sort of my, my most recent uh, research. Um, that again is a reflection of what's happening out in the real world, mm. right? Trying to yeah. engage with it and, um, and and try to make sense of it.
0: So. One of the th- you mentioned how you collaborated with a friend on these things, mm. and you also talked about how there's a lively intellectual community here at Villanova, and then also your time at Columbia. There were study circles. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the role of uh, working with others in uh, you know your intellectual life uh, here at Villanova and before? Yes.
1: Um, you know, that also goes to working with students and, and uh we have a master's program here and we always get graduate students that get assigned to you as, as as sort of research assistant. Um it's just a really nice counterpoint to the rather solitary life of reading and writing. Mm. Right? Uh where you create your own little world by reading in your 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 notes. And um and so to be able to share that world with somebody else and try out some ideas and get some uh, feedback is, uh, is incredibly rewarding mm-hmm. and enriching. Um, probably for my dissertation, the biggest influence was a historian uh, at Berkeley that also was working on something uh, similar uh, as I was working. She had very little conversancy in political science, I had only limited conversancy in German history. Mm-hmm. And so we would send each other chapters mm-hmm. and give each other some 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 sort of feedback um, that vastly improved the quality mm. of, of, of the manuscripts and, more importantly, accelerated the learning process because, you know, you didn't have to make all the mistakes right. yourselves yeah. or embarrass yourself by presenting it at a conference. It was done in private. And it also sort of taught you about um, humility, right that mm, is right uh, you you always overestimate of how clear you are, how much you think you know um, and um and so that then sort of translates in the way you read somebody else's work, right? Mm. Where maybe as a grad student, you know, you're sort of like, uh, you think you're a God's gift to the world (laughs) and and, uh, you're the only person who knows. And you're also sort of trained into this sort of very macho, uh, tearing everybody apart and showing how Mm. smart you are in the seminar, you know, to try to get the attention of Mm. the professors. So it's sort of a very adversarial sort of culture um, that is really, unfortunate, right mm. uh, because uh, as I said, you're dealing with complicated uh, questions mm-hmm. and um, and so sometimes a more sort of empathetic understanding and, and, and dialogue is much more uh, sort of constructive mm-hmm. and so I think this sort of working together with with, with others helped me improve. And they, in turn, help to improve my sort of work. And uh, I've always enjoyed that a great deal. You know, it requires, though, that you're on the same wavelength, mm, right? That is, yeah. it is a give and take. Uh, you will find that very quickly in, in, in education, in conferences. People are very sort of instrumentalist. You know, if they mm-hmm. can get you to read something... Uh, but then you send them something and you never hear back mm. y- you know you realize that that's not somebody um, that is worth pursuing any further right. so so it's it's rare when it happens but when it happens it's it's one of the most rewarding uh, sort of aspects mm.
0: thank you for that very thorough answer so I want at this point I want to get a little bit Uh, into the weeds about methodology, because you've mentioned that as one of the uh, areas that you were focused on. So could you briefly explain what you mean by methodology, and could you explain how political science methodology differs from other disciplines?
1: Okay, so now you got me going here. (laughs) Um, You know, it should be pretty clear by now that I draw a lot on history, Mm -hmm. right? And the role of history in the political science is somewhat marginal. Mm. That is, uh, the mainstream of political science tries to aspire to become scientific and therefore assumes a world, right, that is very close to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And in the natural world, you don't really have a history. Right. You do, right? I mean... You have evolution and 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 with global warming, we know that the natural world evolves as well. But it evolves at such a slow and glacial space that you can assume that history doesn't really matter. So it's a static uh, world,
0: yeah. And in a sense, a discipline like chemistry somewhat stands outside of history and says, this is how it is, without regard for like how the discipline emerged or how things changed, really. Exactly. So
1: you you brought up you know chemistry. I mean the atoms or, or molecules, right? Uh, they don't have a history. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't write a biography about a molecule the way we focus on the biography of an individual,s or you know, or or the history of a cell culture or something more complex. So they're they're very kind of um, decontextualized, and um, and that allows you to study them in a particular way. Mm-hmm. You know, math is very good in dealing with a world in which history does not uh, play a particular uh, role. and um, But that does not really happen or apply to the political or social world mm. because we're constantly changing, evolving, right? I mean, I grew up in a world in the Cold War where countries were pretty much self-contained that was some trade among them, some financial interactions, and then you have sort of the globalization that is con- has uh, totally transformed the world that we live in. I had mentioned before the pandemic, the end of the Cold War. So you, you have these, these historical moments that transforms things. It, it's sort of interesting if you think uh, of economics, right, economics as sort of being the most ahistorical discipline in the social sciences mm. uh, that... Um, operates or assumes that the economic world is like that of a chemist, right, Mm -hmm. devoid of history. But every once in a while, they have to acknowledge that there are historical moments that change things. The language they use for it is telling. They refer to this as exogenous shocks. Mm, Interesting. So you, you, you assume an endogenous world that is orderly, like that of a chemist, but, you know, you can't sort of totally dismiss a financial crisis, mm-hmm. right? Or, or a pandemic. And so you refer to this as an exogenous shock. And the language is telling because, think about it, exogenous, mm-hmm. right? It's the utter. You, you, you literally utter history. Right. And therefore it. You call it a shock, like, like a medical shock, right? That is something mm-hmm. harmful that you need to protect yourself with these sort of uh, uh, parameters. So anyway... So methodologically, I'm really interested in thinking about how to incorporate history more fully in the sort of social sciences mm-hmm. without having to be a historian. Right? Uh, the, the, the joke is, is that um, for political scientists, right, the methods tend to be better than their results. Hmm. Right? And for historians the joke is that their results are better than their methods.
0: That's Be- funny, yeah.
1: Because the historians are sort of notorious for disliking his theory and, and and methodology. Um and so, you know, I'm I'm still a social scientist. I want to sort of generalize, I'm interested in, in, in testing, I'm interested in, in theories. And so I'm sort of trying to um work out this sort of middle ground between history and um, and essentially statistics and math. And there's a long distinguished research traditions in the social sciences called comparative historical analysis. Mm. Right. This goes back to some of the 19th century classics. Marx did comparative historical analysis. He didn't mm-hmm. use that term. Emile Durkheim, Max Weber... Alex de Tocqueville. I mean, mm. these were all people who were generalizing very broadly, operating in a historical mode of analysis, emphasizing the importance of context and sort of changes over time. And that tradition carries on uh, in historical sociology and in historical institutionalism, in IR, right? Constructivists, mm. economic historians. So there are a whole bunch of people who are working in this sort of historical mindset um, and so over the last seven or eight years, I've been working on this and have written a book called The Grammar of Time mm. that, um, you know, is coming out actually next month. And oh, it's that, how exciting. Yeah. Thank you. that is trying to sort of, uh, explicate some of this sort of, uh, comparative historical, uh, methodology more, more, more explicitly.
0: Mm. So... Could you give us a little preview of The Grammar of History? Is that the title? uh, No, The Grammar of Time. The Grammar of Time.
1: Yes. I mean, without going into the weeds, let me give it, maybe illustrate it with an example of Mm. of one of my favorite books that I also like to use for teaching. You may have heard about Malcolm Gladwell, right? Yes, yeah. He's sort of a very well-known science writer who has used uh, social sciences, and popularize some of these findings, so he wrote a book called Outliers. And um, central focus of Outliers is trying to explain why some individuals, like a Jeff Bezos, um, you know, the, the the guy from Amazon, uh, from Microsoft, uh, Bill Gates, yeah. you're right, uh, have become so phenomenally successful. And the standard explanation that he finds given by economists or in the business journals is focusing on the individuals, right? He calls this the talent myth, that these Mm -hmm. are individuals who are exceptionally talented, hardworking, visionaries, willing to take risks and so forth, and that that explains why they are so enormously uh, successful, and he does not discount, you know, the individual attributes of those individuals that they play an important role, but he says that explanation is inadequate because there are many other factors that play a role. And he sort of uses a comparative historical uh, analysis framework to then fill in some of these other factors. And so he sort of goes back in time. He 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 argues that this talent myth is is too. Short-term in its focus, mm. and then he goes back and says, "Well, look, listen. We know that in order to be really good at something, right, mm-hmm. you have to have practiced is at least for ten thousand hours, right?
0: Yeah. So you
1: know, the talents don't drop out of the sky. They, 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 it's, it's something that is learned. And in order to practice something for ten thousand hours, well, you need certain resources. Not everybody has these resources uh, available." Mm. Um, and then he also sort of points out, for example, well, okay, we have a lot of people who over time have practiced 10,000 hours in, in, in something, and they're certainly more successful than those that didn't, but they did not become outliers. They did mm-hmm. not become these mega uh, millionaires, and he says, well, look, listen, there was another peer in our history, we also had a lot of outliers. And those were the rubber barons, right, mm-hmm. in the late 19th century. So he uses this sort of historical perspective. And then he says, well, what do the, the tech entrepreneurs, right, and the rubber barons have in common? And he says, well, at both of these historical junctures, you have a new technology, right? The railroad or computing that created new markets that had very low entry barriers uh, and that grew very rapidly, and therefore allowed those individuals not just to become very wealthy, but super wealthy. So you see how he sort of layers on top of the talent myth, right, mm-hmm. temporal elements like the 10,000 hours and, and the resources that were required, and then the historical context to explain uh, this sort of phenomenal sort of context. So these elements of, of time, right, the 10,000 hours, the historical context, are some of these elements that constitute the grammar of time that defines comparative historical analysis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are a lot of people who have written on this, but in a sort of very fragmentary uh, way, I talk about their comparative historical analysis is spoken in a lot of different vernaculars, right? And these vernaculars don't really talk to each other, And so what this book sort of tries to do is extrapolate from those vernaculars a grammar Mm. that is a little bit more systematic and therefore hopefully can contribute that comparative historical analysis is, is taught more widely and is easier to learn.
0: Very interesting. And one of the things that you've said in classes that I've taken with you is how certain events have long causes, medium causes, and short causes, and long results, medium results, and short results. Could you expound on that a little bit? Yes.
1: So, okay, I'm, I'm glad you remember this. This is um, a sort of a two-by-two table by Paul Pearson, right, where, mm-hmm. where he explains um, uh, the, the time horizon of different types of explanation. So uh, this goes back again um, to what I was saying before. If I continue with the example of uh, Malcolm Gladwell and the outliers, right? The talent myth is a short, short explanation. That is, you know, y- you explain the, the success of the individuals with causal factors that are relatively proximate in time to the success, namely the individuals and his and her attributes. So that would be a short, short explanation, right? And Malcolm Gladwell sort of says, well, that's not really sufficient. We need to also extend the causal chain going back and that's then when you get the 10,000 hours, right? The 10,000 hours is not just something that happens during your professional life, that happens in your youth, that happens that involves the background of your family, so you go further back in time so now you have an explanation that is still short, right? You're still a super wealthy individual, but the story that you tell for how you got there is a little bit longer. Mm. So that makes a long, uh, short uh, sort of explanation. And, um, and then if you want to pivot to a long, long explanation, right? Um, one example for this would be global warming, right? Mm. For the global mm-hmm. warming, the, um, the increase in CO2 emissions that we have sort of build up is a long process that goes back to the industrialization um, but unlike with the outliers, it does not produce a very instantaneous increase in changing climate because the climate change itself is very incremental and slow. Mm. So this would give you an example where you have a long, long explanations, where the outcome now is not just a single snapshot, but a process that expands over a period of time. And... Um, and so it uh, requires a different sort of explanation. And so it's these long, long explanations, right, that really is where comparative historical analysis uh, tries to focus on. Or, you know, if, if you want to apply this to populism, right, you have the short, short explanations where Trump's victory is explained in terms of Hillary's email fiasco in terms of Trump's savvy with with, with with the media and bullying people, that would be a short, short explanation, right? If you want a short, long explanation, you know, you would focus, for example, on the increase in inequality and the status anxiety is created among white working-class voters in, in some of the swing districts. Um, now, it's no longer just Hillary and um, and Trump, but it's broader, deeper structural factors. And then you can also make it a long, long, where you then sort of point out and say, well, hold on a second. Trump is not the first populist mm-hmm. that we see emerging, right? We had many earlier instances going back all the way to the, 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 the Jim Crow system. And so we had this sort of recurring sort of pattern. And that then gives you a, a different explanation.
0: I'm glad that you brought up populism, because that was the title of the senior seminar that I took with you uh, last uh, last year, yeah, yeah. It was a year ago. Um, so could you explain a little bit, like, why you wanted to teach about populism and how your previous research and uh, experience influenced the way you approached that course? Yes.
1: Um there were a variety of factors that got me interested in populism. First and foremost, right, um, just the contemporary political environment that we live in um, that is very troublesome, um, both to me as as a as as, as a citizen, right. Um, I mean, I read a Swiss newspaper every day and the New York Times, and it's like living in two different worlds, right. I mean, in Switzerland, they're sort of well, you know, how can we. Well, got a budget deficit for two billion dollars for next year. You know what can we do in order to rebalance the budget by next year, right? And here we're calling each other names and 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 try to trip each other up and and not talk to each other. So th- these are uh, very different worlds, and I'd, I'd much rather the U.S. <laughs> be closer <laughs> to mm-hmm. sort of the Swiss political culture. Um. The, the second thing was, in many ways, it's a return to my dissertation, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. interwar period with this hyperpolarization, dysfunctional party systems, uh, democracies not being able to respond uh, to the needs of, of, of their voters and eventually sort of collapsing. And so I sort of see history echoing. Mm-hmm. It's not repeating itself yet in, in, in the U.S., but there are certain, were some echoes that got me interested and then the third and probably the most important part is um, is the students, right? I mean, this is the world that you're entering into and that um, you should have some idea as to what might be some of the contributing factors to some of these dysfunctionalities so that you can use that knowledge to guide how you conduct yourself uh, as, as, as as citizens how you may want to um, plan your pro- professional futures to 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 respond to this and um, um, yeah so that that I think was was a very important factor to just you know we, we don't have answers what the root causes are right mm-hmm. I mean much of it is is fairly sort of speculative but at least you uh, if you have some sort of understanding of what the possible uh, factors are, you don't feel so powerless, Mm. right? In a a world where we call each other just names, and maybe even at the small level, it will help you to start having conversations with people from the other end of the political spectrum. I mean, that, that was sort of... Pedagogically, the challenging teaching this course, mm. right? That you have students who span the entire political spectrum, and how can we have a civil conversation where we understand where people come from, what their um, views are, what shaped them, and how we can find some some common ground rather than calling each other, you know, you're woke, you're a Trumpy, or or, um, and then you know, it becomes a food fight before you know it.
0: Mm. Yeah, very interesting. And you briefly mentioned, like, the pedagogy of the course. And so, drawing from the senior seminar and also, you also teach research seminar, Mm. could you talk a little bit about about what political science pedagogy is like and what skills you try to impart to students?
1: Yes. Um... That's a good um, question. I, what I try to impart has changed over time, right? Okay. In the early stages of my teaching care, career, I was much more focused on content. You need to know X, Y, and Z, and the EU does this, the presidential system is that, and so forth. And um, as I sort of saw my own children, you know, go through the high school systems... I got much more interested in developing skills, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, reading and writing uh, uh, skills. Um, and so I think this is very much sort of the focus, uh, I think, of, of, of my sort of teaching is is how to make sense with a complex world that you live in. And so in, in the research seminar that we focus on, we spend the first third of the course just how do you define a question, mm-hmm. right, that is yeah. researchable, um, and um, and then once you have this sort of research question, how do you uh, go about answering? How do you uh, find relevant information? How do you evaluate the quality of, of the information and bring it to bear uh, to an argument and how you sort of structure uh, an, an argument? And so that is sort of the, um, the, the, the major focus of, of my research. And then I have this sort of pet... Um, pet concerns of mine is about reading, mm. right? That is, um, we don't read enough. We don't read closely enough. Um, and um, And so how do you instill and maintain a reading culture uh, among the young generation where, you know, with social media and um, everything being online, it has become much more difficult to just tune out, focus on a text, focus on complex ideas, take them apart, and again, bring them into conversation with other ideas, because that's where knowledge uh, is, is created. And that's, I think, where learning becomes exciting, when you try, manage to see commonalities where you didn't see some uh, before, and can build some, some bridges.
0: I, I definitely agree with you. People my age don't read enough. I don't read enough. Uh, it, it, is, it is something that uh, I think a lot, a lot of people are a little bit more mindful of now than maybe they used to be about how phones very much shorten your attention span, kind of pull you away from books and stuff. But what are some of the books that you've read throughout your career that have uh, left an impact on you or influenced your career or influenced what you're interested in researching? Or maybe just ones that you read recently. Recently, okay, you.
1: okay. So th- that that narrows you down uh, uh, a little bit. Um, well, one book that left a big impact on me is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. So Daniel Kahneman is a, a psychologist and a behavioral economist, you know, who had won the no- Nobel Prize. And he had done a lot of very exciting and interesting works on cognitive biases, right, mm-hmm. uh, confirmation bias and a whole bunch of others uh, and, and how we sort of think. And, um, and this is a book um, that tries to understand how we make, how our different styles of thinking, different sort of cognitive mindsets. And the thinking fast and the thinking slow uh, are two distinct parts of the brain that serve different functions. So the thinking fast is the intuitive, right? The fast thinking where we, you know, make sort of quick decisions. And he points out that this intuitive thinking plays a very important role, right? Because it draws on our past experiences. It allows us to make sort of quick decisions. But very often, it's a little bit uh, rushed and and overmature. And the slow thinking is a more inferential thinking where you then sort of bring... Uh, uh, you 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 realize your own shortcomings and you double check it, you engage in sort of counterfactual thinking, you mm-hmm. look at it from different sort of perspectives. And the reason why I like this so much because it it illustrates, to some extent the values of a liberal arts education that play such a central role here at at, at Villanova, right? that we we need different mindsets, different perspectives, Mm -hmm. um, and that you train by taking courses in in different disciplines with different professors, different methodologies, and that allow you to look at a phenomenon from from different perspectives, right? To maybe sort of illustrate this. As an undergraduate, I was really interested in art history. Mm And Paul Cezanne, you know, was was a pivotal artist in in, in modern art history because he marked sort of the transition from the classical um, um, painting where the painting was essentially a window into the world and it tried to be as representational as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You tried to replicate the world as closely as you Saw it with your own, own own eyes. And this representational form of painting uh, became increasingly obsolete because he had photography, right? If mm-hmm. photography did yeah. it better than you could as a painter. So artists started to sort of think of, of, of how to rethink the representation of, of the artistic world. And so what he would do is he would try to have mountains and within the same painting, paint different perspectives on the mountain you know, from from the front, from the side, from above, and combine that in one painting. And so that sort of in many ways is the way I think of a liberal arts education, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you see a more complex mountain, uh, but it's a richer mountain that reveals more insight and is deeper. Mm. And um, and I think that's sort of what, what uh, I really like about the liberal arts education that we give here at Villanova. And so this book by Daniel Kahneman right, uh, sort of uh, represents that.
0: Mm. And it kind of reflects your interest in comparative historical analysis where you're looking at both, like, the sort of historical play of events but also trying to fit it within a—or apply a framework or model to it.
1: Exactly. Uh, And so I I guess to come back to your earlier questions about the the methodology or the pedagogy, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that I try to sort of uh, put front-center in my teaching— is you know, when I was department chair and you have sort of Parents Weekend or, or uh, Majors Fair, and you're trying to make the sales pitch for a liberal arts education. Uh, and you know you always come back to the same old kind of platitudes about critical thinking and this, that, and the other. And, and so I'm almost trying to make the case of, uh, trying to make the case for a liberal arts education that is a little bit more systematic. Right in terms of these different cognitive mindsets uh, using history or geography to look at the same phenomena from different perspectives. And so I think sort of the comparative historical analysis really epitomizes the multidimensionality that um, uh, comes with a liberal arts education.
0: Yeah, and I guess the final thing that I kind of want to ask you, are there any... Uh, historical frameworks or models that you are particularly fond of or you think are illustrative of, like, uh, history and help people understand history better? Different historical uh, models. Um, well,
1: you know, history is not a singularity, mm-hmm. right? So you, you have um, cultural historians, Um that have a relatively narrow focus, right, on the individual, on groups, on, on, on the identities, or, or a biographer um, that is fairly microscopic but allows you to go into great depth, right? Um, so the group or the individual uh, emerges in their full complexity, mm-hmm. or if, if, if you have a temporal dimension, how that identity changed over, 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 over time. Um, but then you also have sort of more recently new fields called global history or mm-hmm. international history, right, or environmental history that operate on a totally different scale, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead of looking at a group within a two- or three-year time period or a decade, you're looking at entire continent civilizations over millennia. Um, and um, and so I think I'm, I'm sort of fascinated, again, not by one, mm. but what their similarities and differences are, and how they can complement uh, mm. each 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 other, and so, you know, it's 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 a complicated spot to find yourself in mm-hmm. because you you ask some pretty straightforward questions, and the best I can do is give you some roundabout mm-hmm. answers, um, and but that's I think the best you can do when you're trying to make sense of complex phenomena and what intellectual tools you need to, to study such complex uh,
0: phenomena. Thank you. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Dr. Crozier. thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you very much. I greatly enjoyed uh, having the opportunity to talk to you and very much appreciated the questions that you had. So thanks very much for hosting. Yeah.
0: And last thing, what is the name of the book again, and where could people find it if they're interested?
1: The name of the book is called The Grammar of Time, a toolkit for comparative historical analysis, and it is coming out with Cambridge University Press in May. So I just got the galley proofs, and so it should be on its way to the printer and hopefully available very soon.
0: Very nice. This has been ProfCast. I'm Ryan, and we will see you next time.